As you remember, we try to teach regularly classes on various Christian doctrines that we need to learn. In other words, another word for doctrine is teaching. It just means what the Bible teaches about. And you could put in God, Jesus, salvation, sin. So this class is going to be what the Bible teaches about man and sin. So this Sunday, we're in our second class on the doctrine of man and we are going to cover the image of God today. So, looking forward to this. It's an important subject for us, especially in our Darwinian age. And uh, so, let's uh, pray, and then and then we'll dive into this subject together. So, if you would, unite your hearts with me, and we'll go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do praise you, because you are the one true God. We know that you are the only true God. There is no other. And we recognize the fact that you have created the heavens and the earth, that you've made each one of us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, woven together in our mother's womb. We know that each one of us bears your image, that we are, in fact, your image bearers upon the earth. And uh, Lord, we know that that is a great privilege that it distinguishes us from all the other creatures upon the earth. And we know that it comes with great dignity and honor as well as great responsibility and that there is moral culpability that results from being your image bearers. And we pray that as we dive into this subject today and we look at what the scripture teaches, that you would not only help me to accurately unpack the teaching of scripture but that you would so work in our souls illumining our minds and our hearts by your spirit that we would understand it and not only understand it in our heads but that it would sink down into our hearts and that we would be transformed as a result uh, not only to know how to live uh, as a result but also to under how to understand the person and work of our lord jesus and so we pray uh, in His name, all these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, image of God. Let's uh, start with the basics. Want to just go to the what is really the seminal text on this issue in the first chapter of the Bible. So if someone would turn to Genesis 1 and just read for us Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we'll start here. You guys are so familiar with this that you probably could almost say it by heart, but we'll read it together. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Whoever has it, go ahead and read it. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So that's the key text. Some things to notice about it. In the scripture, there is no other creature about which this language of image of God is applied. Right? So mankind seems to be unique in this regard. Some have asked the question, what about angels? Because they too are personal beings, right? They too have many characteristics uh, of human beings. They speak. There's moral culpability, right? And the fact is, is we just don't know. The Bible never 
attributes the image of God to angels, but they we certainly would acknowledge that they share many many characteristics with us as image bearers. But in the scriptures, the language of image of God is applied only to human beings, in distinction from all the other creatures in the universe. Also, we see in the text that it applies to both male and female. So, you guys, I've mentioned this in previous classes, you may have heard it, you may have not, um, that the way that Hebrew poetry works is not by rhyme and meter, like in our, the poetry we're used to, but rather by parallelism. And there are different kinds of parallelism, but one of them is synonymous parallelism. And you see this in, in verse 27, if you look at your Bibles. So God created man in his own image, and then the next line is parallel to it. it re- this is what you might call a synonymous parallelism. In other words, each of the parallel lines is saying basically the same thing, but in a different way, emphasizing something slightly different, right? So you have, so God created man in his own image, and remember, man in the scripture would be a, can be a general term just for humanity in general, right? And that's what it is here. God created man, humanity, in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? So, in the third line, it's also parallel. It restates the same thing in a different way, but it it expands upon it. It tells you that both male and female mankind are created in the image of God. Okay, so, applies only to man, both to male and female, Now, the language that's used, the basic idea of the Hebrew words that are translated image and likeness, you see that in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The two words used there, obviously, like any word, you have to be careful. You can't just say, well, this word means, it'd be like saying, the word run means, what if I said, the word run means to run around a track like with your body, what would you say? That's true, it does, in some contexts. But in other contexts, it might mean something different. So there's no one meaning of any word. Uh, there is a semantic range, a, a range of meanings of words. But in this context, in these types of contexts, the language of image and likeness has the idea of similarity and at least in, in the, that word that's translated image, in addition to similarity, there's also the idea of representation. So, one of the ways that the language of image, the word image, is used throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, is with regard to idols. So, you're not to make graven images, you're not to worship images, right? So, think about what an idol is a graven image would be a statue, right? And, and what is the statue supposed to do? Well, number one, it's supposed to reflect, it's to be a likeness of a particular deity. And then also, you go to worship that deity at that statue, right? Which would mean that that statue in some way represents the deity being worshipped. And so you can see, even with respect to Images as used to describe idols, the idea of likeness being similarity. So no one goes to an idol statue and says, that is the God. 
They know that the God isn't the statue, uh, in the ancient world at least, but they would have known that the, they would have thought somehow that the statue represented and in some ways was connected with that deity. So you'd have many statues of the deity all over, but they each would be connected to and represent and reflect in some way the deity. Well, when it comes to God, we're not to have graven images, but the, the same ideas of image as in similarity and representation uh, are, are reflected in the, the language of mankind being made in the image of God. So if you wanted to sum up, what does it mean for man to be in the image of God? It means that in some way, in many different ways, we are like God. There is some similarity there in humanity to God, it's his creator. And there is a, an element in which a sense in which man represents him on the earth. So like a, a graven image would be like an idol, a, a deity, a, a fake deity, and represent him in some way. So mankind is like God as creator in some ways and represents him in some way upon the earth. That's the, what the idea of image and likeness means as applied to man. So in fact... I want to add one layer on this. Would someone turn to Genesis 5.3 and read Genesis 5.3? And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his, in his own likeness after his image and called his son Seth. That is a very striking verse, isn't it? When you read that verse, overlaid against Genesis 1.26 and 27, it says God created man in his image and likeness. And then here it says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. So here you see that there's a relational thing going on as well with image and likeness. If you have had a child, that child does is literally like you in some ways, right? You see some reflection of yourself. Literally, your physical resemblance is there in that child. But also, the fact that that child has come from you, that there's a sense in which that child is a representative of your family. He is connected in with you as in, in a relational way. And I think when you think of the, the clear parallel between physical children and their parents, the children being in the image and likeness of their parents, you recognize that as we walk around the world and we see other people, we are in a sense seeing children of God, right? In the sense that they all bear the likeness of their creator. Now, there's certainly the way that every human being is a child of God is fundamentally different than the way that the covenant people of God are his children by way of adoption. But just by way of creation relationship, there is a sense in which you could say that humanity are the offspring of God, the children of God. They, they walk around the earth, whether they know it or not, bearing his image, reflecting him. So that is something to remember, by the way. I was thinking about this as 
you know, you're walking down the street and you see scraggly guy, you know, <laughs> sleeping on the side of the road, totally passed out from alcohol or drugs, and there's a part of you that just you your heart just grieves over seeing that. But the reason why you grieve is because you recognize that there's a dignity there that has been soiled, has been distorted by sin and all of its effects. But that person bears the image of God just like you do, right? So there's this inherent dignity. And it is the very fact that he is an image bearer that makes his condition so wretched and grievous, right? Um, and the same could be said of all of us with respect to our sin, you know? That as you see us in our state of corruption and sin, it is the very fact that we bear the image of our Creator that makes that so grievous. But it's also the reason why you don't just treat a human being the way you would any other animal, or a rock, or a tree, um, because there's this inherent dignity that comes from being the uh, bearing the image of God. So any questions about just these basic basic uh, ideas when it comes to the image of God? Basic biblical truths, put it that way. Okay. Alright, so let's go to, I want to take those two ideas that we said were bound up with the language of image and likeness, similarities, being like God in various ways, and then representation. And so we'll look at both of those in turn. And I want to start with some of the ways that man is like God, is similar to God, because that, that is wrapped up with what it means to be an image bearer, is to, that we are like it. In, being in the image of God in one sense just captures all of the ways in which human beings are like God. There's many, many ways in which we are not like God, but there are some ways in which we are. And all of those ways in which we are like God are being referred to by the language of being in the image of God. So the first thing you have to say is that the Bible doesn't provide some comprehensive list of the, all the ways that man is similar to his creator. And by man, I mean male and female. So there's a sense in which, as theologians have mold over this, they don't have a particular biblical text for, in mind for every single one of these things. There's a sense in which both by looking at human beings in terms of just general revelation, looking at human beings and how they observing how they are different from the animals and from other creatures, what makes them unique. That's one way in which people have pointed out to similarities, but then also things that are evident in the scripture themselves. And so when we just take those two things, you know, both biblical truths and other observations about how man is like God, generally we come up with a number of categories. One is morality, that man is a moral, human beings are moral, whereas other creatures, um, and again, we exclude angels, right? Because uh, they're a little bit of a different situation. We don't have a lot of information about how we're to understand them. But all the other creatures in the world, we talked about this last time, you could take the most sophisticated mammal, uh, whether it was an orca or an ape, all of the jostling and competition and violence that takes place between animals in the context of 
the animal world, when they kill one another, we don't say that they murder, right? And that they should be thrown in jail, right? They're not moral in that sense. And they don't have a a conscience in the way that human beings do, where they have this sense of moral, what is right and wrong. And when they they do what is wrong, that they, they have a sense of guilt. No giraffe has a sense of guilt if they maim another giraffe in their vying for domination among the female giraffes. That does not... There's no sense of moral culpability because they're not moral creatures, but human beings are. They have a conscience. Human beings in the scriptures, for instance, you see that they are held responsible in a way that no other creature is for their actions, for their moral behavior. Um, It is mankind that is punished for sin, that is uh, lauded for upright behavior, but no other creatures. And then again, this sense of guilt when their conscience is violated. So it's man's morality that makes him like God. It's also his spirituality. Okay, so there is a sense in which you could read texts where there is a personification going on, right? Let all the trees of the field clap their hands, right? And, and the stones cry out. But we know that that is just that. It's, it's personification. It's taking human qualities and attributing them to inanimate things. But it doesn't actually mean that the stones are going to praise God and that you know, the, the trees are going to clap their hands. It's just a, a sort of a way of saying that all the created order is to is to bring glory to God according to their own natures. But with man, it's different. Man, when they're called to pray, or praise God, or thank God, or obey God, this is not just personification, is it? Because they have a, they have a soul, an interior quality to them that other creatures do not. Um, that they have a spirituality. They can worship God. And we know that that soul, when we say that a soul is immortal, we don't mean that that it could never be destroyed as in the way that God is immortal, right? Um, But we do mean that God has intended that once a human being is created, they will never finally pass out of existence. Even after they die, they will go to either heaven or hell. And that there will be an eternal state for a human being. So, so we see that man has a spiritual quality that makes him like God. God himself is spirit, and man has a spiritual aspect to his nature by which he can worship God and pray to God and praise him. And we would say in some ways that all of the immaterial aspects of man are wrapped up with this. And this is something that while... Animals do have some kind of immaterial aspect. In some ways, it's mysterious, yet it's not, it's not the same as human beings. There is a vast difference between you know, the spirit of an animal, whatever that is, or we don't really understand it, uh, and the spirit of a man. Also, there's what you might call, there's a lot of different things that might fall into the category of rationality. So, uh, the use of logic and reason, 
there's a, a degree of intelligence that man has that is far, far superior than any of the other creatures and of a different quality than the other creatures. Problem solving, an awareness of history, the contemplation of the future, right? You don't have orcas writing a history of orcas, right? <laughs> or thinking about the future civilization of orcas. With all of their intelligence, but mankind does. He reflects back upon the past and thinks about the future. Also, creativity and artistry. This, too, is something that you don't see anywhere else. But going back into the, you know, the farthest reaches of recorded history, you see man reflecting uh, the ability to, uh, to create and the sense of the aesthetics. And so, whether it's the pictographs that you see, is that what they're called? Mm -hmm. Of the Native Americans on the rock walls in the Southwest, uh, or in the Midwest, or, or um, the, you know, like I showed on the first page, uh, uh, Michelangelo's wonderful paintings in the Sistine Chapel. You don't see any other creatures writing symphonies, right? <laughs> so there's a level of rationale, and then also complex emotions and language. So, you know, you take a, a baby elephant away from its mother and there is a emotions there, right? There, it's clear that animals do have emotions. If you own a dog, you know it. If you own a cat, you don't really, it's hard to tell. <laughs> if you own a dog, you know. Although my cat, one of my cats definitely has emotions. Um, and language, Right? There, it's not to say that other creatures don't communicate in some way, but, but language is unique to human beings. So you can see there's this whole realm of what you might call rationality that reflects ways that man is uniquely like God. And we see these, while the, the Bible is not saying that God is exactly like man, yet it can take all of these ways of describing man and attribute them to God. In a, it's a way of saying that there is some correspondence to these aspects of our nature to the, to the God who made us. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. God isn't exactly like us in all that way. His emotions, he doesn't have emotions like us, right? But there is some, there is some correspondence. Okay, and then relationality. So the fact that man is clearly personal in a way that no other creature is. Even gender uh, indicates a personhood. You can't read, or a relationality, you can't read Genesis 2, and man and woman being created, and the woman created out of man, and then he, she is brought to the man, and he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and he names her, and, and then by the end of the chapter you have marriage, right? So there's a personality, uh, gender is part of that. Language, God speaks to man in ways that he doesn't speak to anyone else, uh, any of the other creatures. Relationships in the scriptures, it's, it's only with human beings that you see the institutions of marriage and family and church, right? Or the covenant community. And then also, just the fact that man is able to have covenant relationships with God and with one another, you know, like David and Jonathan or whatnot. Love is, is uh, a characteristic. Of course, there is some kind of affection between in the animal kingdom as well. 
But the type of love that you see described in the scripture, love is patient, love is kind, love is, does not, is not easily angered, etc., etc., is unique to human beings. And it's another way that man is like God. Okay, so, so there's more that could be said, but it's these types of things that are reflected, yes, in the scriptures, and also just by way of common, of general observation of human beings that you would say, distinguish him from other creatures and reflect his likeness to God. Now, we would say that animals, that didn't come out right, but animals do possess some of these characteristics, but only in a limited and in a far inferior way. And by inferior, I mean there is definitely not just a quantitative difference, but even a qualitative difference, right? Between the way these things manifest themselves in the animal world, uh, the non-human world, and in human beings. Okay, any questions about this or observations? It's just so wonderful to be reminded of these truths um, and compared to, you know, the... um, What's sin in Romans one and how we replace the right. image of God right. for the image for creatures and create and worship exchange and worship creature and we just see that right. on the rise it seems in our right. culture right mm-hmm. right and it's rejecting God right <laughs> so yeah the more you grasp your likeness to God the more you grasp the ugliness and heinousness of sin, right? Right. Yeah. right. In yeah. your previous one, talking about the dignity of like the drunk or the, the homeless. Yeah. Um, as you were saying that, I was reminding myself that when I look upon whoever it is that I see as I'm walking through my daily walk, that I'm actually looking at the image of God no matter how deteriorated mm-hmm. sin has created it mm-hmm. that's still the image of God right. that is walking about right. mm-hmm. I remember, was, I think it was Tim Keller that made a comment that's always stuck with me, he said, you know, what's the most beautiful what's more beautiful you know, a sunset at the Grand Canyon or a train car, a subway car full of people right? <laughs> and there's a sense in which you want to say well of course the sunset at the Grand Canyon you know why? Well, because it's unstained by sort of sin and wickedness. But if we would just say qualitatively, it's that train car full of people that's actually the more beautiful because it's filled with the image of God, right? And in fact, the whole creation was supposed to be just the theater for mankind who bears the image of God, filling it up, filling it up so that he would be filling it up with the glory of of God reflected in their image. But of course, now that's been corrupted, but yeah. Yeah, the rationality and relationality. Yeah. Like there's a, like what they both point to is this idea of agency. That like, there's a, like a kind of autonomy that God respects that we see in the Bible where he, he makes deals with people, you know, and like right. condescends to a human level right. with Gideon or with, you know, over right. and over. Right. Yeah, there is a, the, I think with personality and morality, for instance, there becomes a responsibility, a, a, a human agency of a sort, right? It doesn't mean that he, it, so, you know, I just finished reading the book of Esther, right? Uh, 
there's a there's an, a creaturely autonomy there in the sense that everyone's people are doing what they want to do and they they do what they think is right so Mordecai and Esther choose to do hard things because they know it's right Haman is doing wicked things because he wants to kill the Jews and yet who is superintending all of it so Haman comes in you remember in that incredible dramatic moment and he and as soon as he walks in, the king says, Haman, what should I do for a person that I, that I want to honor? And Haman thinks it's him. And so he tells him all these things. And he says, go and do that to Mordecai, the very person that Haman was coming in to ask the king if he could put him to death on these gallows. And so there's human agency and yet divine sovereignty over it all, ordering even the the free choices, as it were, of men, so that we say that the free choices of men for which they are responsible are in some mysterious way also subject to divine sovereignty and providence. So it's a, but you're right, I mean, the image of God is what makes it, is, is what make, makes the man's relationship with God distinct in the sense that there is moral culpability and a certain level of freedom and self-governance. Yeah. What you just said, without faith, is a tailspin. Um, free will and the sovereignty of God. Right. And people that don't have faith try to argue that with me, and I just... Right. I don't argue it, because if you don't have faith, you can't step into that circle and right. find that it's not chaotic, but right. it's perfectly designed. Yeah, I always say, you know, like when my kids ask me questions that's too hard to answer, my fallback is, well, this is what the Bible says. So the Bible says, for instance, man has free, makes free moral choices for which he's responsible. And when I say free, I don't mean free as in subject from any outside constraint, but free in the sense that God's not down there going, you will choose this, right? people are doing what they want there's a sort of creaturely freedom that's affirmed in the bible and god's sovereignty over all is affirmed in the bible when rehoboam consults with the young men and spurns the counsel of the old men and decides to tell the tribes of israel you know if you thought my father was bad i'm going to be even harder on you and they say well great we're gonna you know you, you tend to your own house we're leaving and that's when the kingdom split and you go, there was all kinds of free decisions going on there. People were doing what they wanted to do. And yet, the author says, and this came about because God was judging the house of Judah for Solomon's idolatry, right? He had told Solomon he was going to tear away ten of the tribes. So you say, both are affirmed. But if you say, well, how can that be? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like that's the mystery. There is a degree of mystery. It doesn't mean that they're contradictory. This is not like a square is a circle. You're like, no, that that's a contradiction. That's not what that's not what this is. But it is a mystery. We don't know how to sort it all out. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep going here. The second part of the idea of image and likeness is representation, and I think this too is evident in uh, the texts. So, just to back up a bit and lay a little bit of groundwork here, man, in the scripture, it's the second commandment, is forbidden from making images of God to worship. So, it says graven images, but of course, 
It wouldn't just be graven images. If they were to paint a painting and stick it on the wall, uh, they shouldn't worship that either. So graven image, the second commandment has a broader application that we're not to, we're not to create anything that would be designed to physically be a likeness of God so that we would worship God through the physical likeness. That's the idea. But then you step back and you realize, but there is one image of God, isn't there? There's images, all the other gods have images, statues, etc. Or maybe a tree or a mountain, or they just take something that's already in existence, the sun. right? But God says, no images of me, except there is one image of him, right? Human beings are said to be in the image of God. In fact, there's a sense in which they are walking, talking, living images of God. The only image of God upon the earth. Now, in the ancient world, many scholars have pointed this out, that if you go back, and now, now that we have the discipline of modern archaeology, and we look at ancient texts, and you realize that one of the things that happened in the ancient world was that you would have these statues put in various places, not only to be, you know, a means by which people could worship a god, but also as a representation that of that god's authority there, that this god represented by this statute is the god of this place, right? And tended, tended to be that deities were attributed authority over certain regions, you know? So you saw this in some of the ancient, in the scripture, that the... Uh, enemies of Israel would say they get defeated by Israel in battle because Yahweh defeats them. And they say, well, I think this is in the book of Kings. Say, well, their God is the God of the hills. And so we need to try to fight them on the plains and then we'll be able to win, right? Uh, And this is part of the... It's meant to be humorous, as if Yahweh were somehow restricted to one place. But that's how they thought of their gods. And and even if, if you had someone like Pharaoh who was thought to be a god or to be a manifestation of God upon the earth, you might put a statue of Pharaoh in different parts of his region and that statue would represent the authority of Pharaoh in those different places. And so what we see is that to an ancient reader, the idea of man being in the image of God would have evoked in some way this idea of representation, that they are to represent God upon the earth. And of course, when you start looking at the text, if you go back and you look at the seminal text regarding image of God, do you see anything that ties in with the idea of representing God's authority on the earth? Well, let's go back and look at Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You go down to verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so... This is the seminal text about image of God, and it also 
connects in with being in the image of God, the idea that they were to fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over it. So, and we know that this dominion, it was not totally autonomous, was it? It wasn't like God was saying, go rule the earth however you want. In fact, in the next chapter, he gives them command, right? Of all the trees you may eat, but of this tree, you don't eat. Even this dominion is a command of God. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And also, if you look down in verse 29, you see he gives them another command. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. So, God's in charge here, right? (laughs) He's not giving man free reign. But he is delegating to man authority to rule the earth under him. And the implication that's fleshed out throughout the rest of the Bible is that man was supposed to rule the earth in a way that honored God and reflected his will. So it's not like, you know, God said, you know, go exploit the earth's resources however you want. And, you know, creation, uh, it doesn't matter if you destroy rivers and pollute the air and all that stuff. No. It's supposed to be done in a way that honors God. And in a fallen world, there's always trade-offs that we have to weigh up. Yet, this is a stewardship, not like you're your own king to do whatever you want. And so, image of God has functional components as well. Man is in the image of God upon the earth. He is like God in certain ways, and he represents God and God's authority on the earth, such that he is that is expressed by the fact that he is commanded to exercise dominion over the earth under God and to rule it, to subdue it and rule it in a way that honors God. Okay? So I think that man's uh, dominion mandate, which is tied in with image of God, is a functional expression of the fact that he, as image bearer, represents God's authority upon the earth. So that when you look at man, and you see the image of God there, and you see him operating upon the earth, it should remind you that God, his creator, is in charge of this place, right? Does it make sense? So any questions about that? All right. One of the questions about image of God is what about fallen man? And there's been somewhat of a debate, although it's pretty much one by one side of the debate because of, I think, clear texts, that the image of God, is it completely lost after the fall? In other words, is fallen man still in the image of God? That husband treating his wife despicably, neglecting his children, right? The the man lying in his vomit on the side of the road, passed out from heroin, uh, virtually naked, is this is does is this man still have the image of God? This is the question. Does fallen man post fall have the image of God still, or is the image of God lost as a result of the fall? And what's the answer? Well, it's summarized there. After the fall, the image of God in man is distorted, but not lost. So, how do you know it's distorted? Well, obviously, all you have to do is read Genesis three. Four, five, by the time you get to six, it's very clear, right? But something has happened so that man is not reflecting God in the way he ought and is not um, representing God in the way that he ought. 
So Genesis 6, let's just look at a couple verses here. 6.1 When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Let's go down to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there's internal evil expressed in outward wickedness. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds and heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. Now, if you just look at a text like that, you realize, wow, something has happened to mankind uh, such that the image of, he's not reflecting God and representing God in the way that he ought. As he's filled the earth, he hasn't filled it with the glory of God, he's filled it with wickedness, right? Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And so he just determines to destroy it. But after the flood, you get to Genesis 9 and what do you see? You still see man's wickedness, but you see that he is still affirmed as bearing the image of God. So look at verse 5. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. By the way, another text that I didn't list here is in James. So if you want a New Testament uh, affirmation of this, when you read in James uh, about in James 3 about the tongue and taming the tongue and you get down to uh, verse 9 it says it had said that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison it says with it with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God so there's multiple texts that affirm clearly that while it is obvious from the storyline of Scripture that the image of God has been damaged and distorted in man because of sin, yet it has not been entirely lost. There's still a dignity there. If a man murders another man, his life is to be is forfeit because that man that he killed was made in the image of God. There's still a, a dignity and a worth there. And we ought not to use our tongue to slander another person. Why? Because that person is made in the image of God. Okay. When you follow the storyline through, you realize that the image of God is restored in pristine fashion in Jesus Christ. And of course, in the scriptures, Jesus is described as the ultimate man, the second Adam, right? So if you go to Romans 5, verses 12 and following, you see that parallel. It talks about sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And then it talks about how that the first Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And then there's this contrast, you know, uh, through the one man's transgression, the many were made sinners. Through the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. And you have these two men, two covenant heads or representative heads of two humanities. One of the new humanity, redeemed through Christ, and one of the original humanity, fallen in Adam. 
So you have the first Adam and the second Adam. And the scripture even uses that language of first Adam and second Adam, or first man, and, uh, or first Adam and last Adam. So Jesus is presented as a man, born of a woman, a true man, but not just any man, right? The second Adam, the ultimate man, the man out of whom a new humanity would be born, born again, redeemed. And what you see when you get to Jesus is that he is described as the ultimate expression of God's image. So let's look at some of these texts. If someone would look up, um, who, who would look up for me? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. raise your hand. Someone do that. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. All right. And then would someone look up Colossians 1.15? Colossians 1.15. Someone raise their hand so I know that. Okay, Paul. And then someone look up Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3. Okay. And then, uh, Ben, would you go ahead and look up John 1.18? Okay, so let's look at, look at these texts. Um, let's start with 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if someone would read that for us. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there you see Christ is described as being the image of God, and therefore being glorious, reflecting God's own glory in himself. Colossians 1.15, who's got that? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, you can't see God, right? God intended humanity to manifest something of his likeness. We've fallen. The likeness of God has been distorted in us. You can't see God, he's invisible. But here comes Jesus, and he's described as he is the image of the invisible God. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples, uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, show us, or Philip, Lord, show us the Father and is enough for us. He says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He reflects for us in visible form perfectly the image of God. You don't say that every aspect of the divine nature is manifested in the man Jesus. But as much as man was to reflect God, Jesus did it, right? <laughs> okay, Hebrews 1.3. Who's got that one? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, so he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Right? So you think... You've got the sun, this ball, and then you've got the light shining forth from the sun. And Jesus is described as the, the radiance of the glory of God, the outshining of his nature, his character. All right. Uh, and, then, and, and also the exact representation. There is nothing distorted about in Christ when it comes to uh, him reflecting God. Are manifesting God. Okay, John 1 and 118. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And if you have uh, a footnote there by only God, what, is it, what does your footnote say? Uh, or the only one who is God, or the only Son. Okay, and so 
There's been lots of debate about this particular word, monogenes. Genes is begotten, mono, only, only begotten. It would typically be used of, a, of either a firstborn or a, a, a firstborn child. Now, it can, in certain contexts, mean unique. But there is this idea, monogenes, only begotten, the only begotten of the Father, He has made Him known. And you, you tick back in your mind. You remember from Genesis 5, it says, Adam bore a son in his image and likeness. His name was Seth. That in the human race, there is, we, our, our children whom we beget reflect something of our image and likeness. Something of that, however it works out in the Godhead, is being used to describe the relationship between son and father, that no one sees the father, but his only begotten, right? The unique son of God, Jesus, bears his image perfectly and has made him known to us. We look at Jesus, we know what God is like, right? He is God's only begotten son. So we see here that Jesus comes along the, as the second Adam, the ultimate man who is in whom the image of God is perfectly and climactically displayed. But then, of course, this pertains to us as well, doesn't it? Because what you see in the Bible is that the storyline of redemption, one of the threads in the storyline of redemption is that Jesus, the second Adam, creates a new humanity. In fact, if you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you see this very language, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this new covenant people is not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. The old covenant, which used to divide them, is broken down, and they're, by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself. In other words, this is a new covenant people, who are related to God in the new covenant through union with Jesus, the second Adam, he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And, you know, man in the scripture, there is almost certainly a collective mankind, a a new humanity, now united to God, in Christ, through their union with Christ. And they are created anew, right? And that language of created is also used in 2.10, where it says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, there's a sense in which the storyline of redemption is God, through the redeeming work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, creating a new humanity, not uh, through the first Adam, but through the second Adam, who has accomplished their redemption, and by the Spirit they are created anew, and now in them, the image of God which is perfectly expressed in Christ is being renewed in them as well. That they are being progressively transformed into the image of Christ. So if you're, we're in Ephesians, let's, we're not going to look at all these verses for the sake of time, but look over to Ephesians 4, 20-24. When you look at that text, he 
first talks about the Gentiles, and he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. And he explains how they walk, live according to the lust of the flesh, with hardness of heart, blinded in their unbelief. And then he turns and he says, in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. And by the way, what does your footnote there say? In the Greek it says, man. To put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self that is new, what man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when you have old man, new man, in this context, when it comes to us, you're talking about your old sin nature, whom you inherited from Adam. And then you're talking about your new self, your that part of you which is now redeemed, and you have been received this new self through union with who? Jesus, the second Adam. And this new self is a new creation, your new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And you see there's this put off the old Put on the new. So this is a progressive thing, right? Throughout your life, you're doing this. It doesn't, there's a now aspect to it because it's an act of new creation. You were dead in sin. You were just your old old man. You, you were just flesh in Adam. But then Christ came along and he created you anew. Now you have a new self. But that old self still remains. And you know that as well as I do, right? <laughs> and so now we're in this process of throughout this life, putting off the old man like a set of clothes, an old dirty set of clothes, and putting on the new man. And, and what does the new man look like? It, it, it looks like true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying, put to, say no to the lusts of the flesh, that old sinful nature you inherited from Adam. Walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, obey the commands of God from your heart, and you will be, you're being progressively renewed into the image of God. So redemption is about through new creation in Christ being progressively transformed into back into the image of God. Except for us, being transformed to the image of God is transformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. So look at 2 Corinthians 4, or 3.18. Now, Paul is going to use the term Lord here, kurios. And in the context, if you go back, that's clearly a reference to Christ. Not to God generically or God the Father, but to Christ. He talks about the veil remaining unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away, verse 14. So when you get down to verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So who is the Lord here? Christ. Now the Lord is the Spirit, so there's a connection between Christ and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the very Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, through faith the veil has been removed, and we are looking, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, look at the next chapter, um, verse uh, 4. In, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what about us, right? Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in Christ, who is the image of God, we see the glory of God manifest. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So you see, that's so this is why you could say that at the very beating heart center of spiritual growth is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, and that through knowing Him, we ourselves are transformed into the same image. Another way of putting it is into the image of God, because He is the perfect image of God, right? So redemption is being created anew and having the image of God restored in us through the work of the Spirit, right? He says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then, of course, there's a culmination of this. There's a culmination of this. The consummation is that one day Christ is going to come and we're going to see Him face to face and we're going to be transformed into His image in a complete way. Now, there's a bunch of texts that I had here, but I just want to look at two. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Let's look at this. This is such a profound text in this regard. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. Who's that? Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's that? Jesus. And notice he's speaking in the, in the future tense. And what is 1 Corinthians 15 all about? The resurrection, right? So, in that day, when we're raised from the dead, in the twinkling of an eye when He returns, we shall, be, we shall bear His image in a full and final way. Now, Paul knows, he wrote 2 Corinthians too. he knows that that's, we're being progressively transformed into that image, but he's anticipating that day. Through resurrection, we will bear His image perfectly. And, and why? 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. You see it there? When we see Christ, when He returns, we will be raised from the dead in glorified bodies, and we will we will be perfectly conformed to his image. It doesn't mean there will be an equal sign between Christ and us, right? There will always be distinctions. But we will be like him in a full and final way. And therefore, we will be conformed fully into the image of God, which, by the way, is what we were always meant to be, right? From the very beginning. But was lost and corrupted through sin. Okay, so very quickly, what does this mean for us? First of all, this is the ground for human equality 
and the antidote against all forms of racial and ethnic prejudice. So you think of our Constitution. Remember Martin Luther King said, hey, we're not living up to the ideals of our Constitution, which said all men are created equal, right? <laughs> he said it's, our, it's that created equal that is the ground for breaking down this racial prejudice so that we would look at each other as having equal dignity and worth despite our race, despite our gender, etc. You know, you could take it on down the line. Darwinism doesn't say that. Darwinism says there are multiple human species. Well, who's to say one might be better than the other? In fact, some probably have died out because survival of the fittest. It's the Bible that says we are all created equal, that we each have the image of God. This doctrine of the image of God is the reason human life at every stage is sacred and must be treated with dignity. If God says that to destroy a human life makes your life forfeit because that person is made in the image of God, you know, where does that stop? Right? Does it stop when you get old and wrinkly and you're losing your mind or you're laying in a bed? No. Does it stop when, you know, is there a time in the womb before when you when you aren't really human and you don't have the image of God, right? No, from for the full range of your existence, your life has dignity only because you're made in God's image. By the way, materialism just says time plus matter plus chance, right? There's really no difference between you and a rock because you're made out of the same stuff. Oh, there's qualitative differences we all, but we're all just stuff, the same stuff. It's Christianity that says there's a distinction, image of God. And it's also the ground for capital punishment. In other words, punishing people with death for committing murder. And we all recognize there are degrees of punishment that should be meted out. Um, for various kinds of killing, but for premeditated murder, we should affirm that, yes, that person's life should be forfeit because of the person that they killed is made in God's image, right? Now, of course, we understand due process, and we understand this is a, there are difficulties to this issue, but it is, it's uh, the image of God that is the ground of this. And by the way, materialistic, you know, naturalist, uh, materialism and Darwinism don't really give that ground. You'd have to come up with some kind of prudential argument. Well, we should use capital punishment because it will restrain killing in society. But you wouldn't have a moral argument for it. Also, this is the source of universal human conscience. It's the common ground that we have with unbelievers. Remember, is it, was it old R.C. Sproul used to say I would, that he would ask people, what do you do with your guilt? Right? Every person has a conscience. They may sear it and make it calloused through repeated violation, but they still have this sense of guilt. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And we can appeal to that. We know every person has it. Also, this, like we were talking about before, Becky, this is what it's when you have a robust sense of your original purpose as being made in the image of God and that it gives you that sense that I am walking around 
having been made specially by God in his likeness and image. In that sense, I am a child of God. Every time you see him in me, you go, that's God's. You could see his image in it. It gives you this sense of why we should reflect his character in the way that we live. Why we should represent him well upon the earth. And it helps us to see the gravity of human sin and why we need redemption. And it gives us a sense of joy, right? To think that this is what Christ has done. He has paid for our sins and he's restoring us into the image of God so that we will one day inhabit a new earth as a new humanity in which as we fill the earth, we will fill it with the glory of God, the image and likeness of God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time just thinking through these issues this morning. Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts through this, that you would renew our minds and transform our characters through uh, studying these truths together from the scriptures. And I pray that they would just be like one building block in our Christian worldview that would be foundational to so many other things. Help us to appreciate uh, who we are in Christ, the redemptive work of Christ, who He is, what He has done for us, and to understand our role in creation, our, in, our purpose in life, and that this would have a, a transformative effect upon us. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.